My name is Patrick J. McGinnis, and I coined the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out, and it's why some people end up following the crowd. But we're not like them. We're part of a new species that isn't afraid to do things differently. I call us FOMO sapiens. And this is the show where you'll meet people like us, phenomenal FOMO sapiens, to learn how they find the courage and the ideas to live exceptional lives. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome back to FOMO Sapiens, the show for people who don't just follow the crowd, but instead take their own path to success in business and in life. I'm your host, Patrick J. McGinnis, venture capitalist by day, author and podcaster by night, FOMO Sapiens 24-7. And the topic today is thinking long-term, playing the long game. And my guest to talk about that is third time FOMO Sapiens guest, Dory Clark. Now, Dory Clark If you haven't heard her before on here, go find the old episodes, but she is really, she's like, she's having a year. She's had a number of years, but especially now, she has been named one of the top 50 business thinkers in the world by Thinkers 50, and she was recognized as the number one communications coach in the world by the Marshall Goldsmith Leading Global Coaches Awards. She teaches executive education at the Duke University Fuqua School of Business. I think I said that right. Fuqua? Fuqua? and at Columbia Business School, and she's the author of her new book, The Long Game, which is out now, as well as the books Entrepreneurial You, Reinventing You, and Stand Out. Now, in this interview, you're gonna learn a couple of things. First, we're gonna talk about Dory's path and how she figured out her big ideas, and especially her current big idea for The Long Game. We're gonna talk about how to stay focused on playing for the long term, even in a world which rewards short term, right? I feel like everybody's thinking short-term, but the long-term is where you win. And we're going to talk about strategic versus tactical thinking, among many other topics. It's a great interview, and I know you're going to love it. But before we get there, I do have my usual small ask, tiny ask here. If you have not subscribed to the show, please subscribe. Just hit that button, smash that subscribe button. And if you have already subscribed, but you haven't rated or made comments on the show, if you would consider doing that, I'd be so grateful. It helps people to find the show and it would mean a lot to me. I read your comments and I learn from them. All right, and now on to the interview. You know, I've known Dory for a while and I've asked her tons of questions, but I wanted to start, just dive right in and go deep. So I started our interview by asking Dory, what's the most important decision that you've had to make to get to where you are today? I think the most important decision was actually deciding to start my own business, which had never occurred to me as something to do. But I was running a small bicycling nonprofit. And I had the revelation that running a nonprofit was basically the same thing as running a business. And I was making so little money that I realized that running a business would actually be less stressful. And so I made that happen in 2006 and have had the uh, self-employed entrepreneurial lifestyle ever since. What was your process for that? Because listen, as somebody who started their own business and was working in the corporate world, which was what I did, like I would see friends who were entrepreneurs and I was like, yeah, that sounds really scary and it's weird. And also what would I do? Like, what, what do I have to, that I can monetize or that I can build? So for me, that was a super painful 10 year process that is ongoing. I think, you know, the journey never ends, but how was it for you? How did you hone in on, cause you've now written what, this is your fourth book. So like, how did you hone in on, you know, you started with the books, now you have the courses, you're doing, you're doing a lot of things, Dory. How has that process been? All of it took quite a while, actually. I think one of the things that I see in people that I coach or folks who are in 
my online community is oftentimes I feel like they're they're sort of beating themselves up because they don't have it figured out fast enough. And mm. I can understand the impulse. I mean, of course, we all want to have it figured out. But the honest truth is these things take time. I started my business in 2006, and my first book didn't come out until seven years later, 2013. And I would say my current business mix of services and offerings really didn't gel until after that. Um, for the first number of years in my business, I was I was doing a lot of different things. I was mostly uh, just trying to answer the question, okay, what can I do that people can pay me for? So I was doing PR, I was doing marketing strategy, I was working for, for different organizations, mostly kind of poorly paid nonprofits and government agencies, because that's where my connections were. And uh, really just kind of figuring it out on the fly. So I, I think it's a bit of an iterative process when you're working for yourself, understanding what you can do and, and how that intersects with market need. So, Dory, your first book was called Reinventing You, right? Which I guess you were kind of doing at the time. And so, they, you know, I think our friend, our mutual friend, Nir Eyal, always says, I think he didn't invent this. It's not his FOMO. But he says, uh, research is me search, and a lot of times people like you and me, when we write our books, it comes out of our own lived experience. That's the point of departure. But for you, those ideas, because you've had a lot of them now, like where do they come from? When are you That first idea, Reinventing You, how did you come up with that? Well, to be really clear, I vowed in 2009, that was the year that I got serious about wanting to try to sell a book proposal. I wrote three different book proposals that year, none of which sold. And they were all about kind of random topics. And I think, you know, the topics were not terrible, but it was not anything that um, was earth shaking. And mostly I just got the feedback that like, you're not famous enough, go get famous. <laughs> so I had to, uh, to start blogging and, and doing all these things that I wasn't originally very excited about. But actually reinventing you, I think this is a really important point. We often are sometimes the worst judge of what other people in the marketplace will find interesting. I did not think that reinvention was a particularly sexy topic. I thought it was fine. It was something that literally I was just like, okay, it is in a category of a thing I could write about. And mm -hmm. because you're right, I had reinvented myself a lot and I had sort of studied the process. I thought, okay, I can do something about this. And so I wrote a blog post about it for the Harvard Business Review and I really could not have predicted compared to the other topics that I actually was excited about and I actually had written whole book proposals about, I could not have predicted that reinvention would be the thing that took off. But I ended up writing a blog post, which then there was this kind of emergency a couple of months later where somebody who had pr promised them an article last minute uh, backed out or there was an issue. And so... Uh, they reached out to me because this article had been popular, this blog post, and they said, hey, can you expand your reinvention blog post into a full-length article? And I was happy to do it. I'm like, okay, great. You know, I, I took up the opportunity. Um, and then once the article came out in the magazine, I had multiple, I had three different literary agents reach out to me and say, oh, hey, have you thought about turning this into a book? And that was the time that it just clicked. I'm like, oh, this is what it feels like to be wanted. This is what it feels like when someone actually likes your idea rather than you pushing a boulder up a hill. And so I was glad to write that book about reinvention. It was not that I had some prescient sense that this would be an amazing topic. It was that I stumbled into it because 
it was something I could do. And then when people, when I realized that people liked it, I thought, okay, great, I'll do more of this. And I, I think it's kind of a discovery driven planning to use uh, Rita McGrath's term. And I, I think we really have to kind of live our way into it. Your story, I did not know that. And it reminds me of a, I had the same experience, which is that I had written a book proposal. It was actually called Crash Proof Your Career. And it was after AIG blew up and I crashed. And then I had these insights of diversifying myself by doing side projects. And I wrote this, I'll be honest, it was kind of an angry book proposal. It was like, corporate America is the worst and they're they're terrible people and you can't trust them. And every time they have a chance to ruin your life, they will. I was in a dark place. <laughs> but But you should diversify. And so that was the original idea. And the feedback, the 33 rejections told me that, you know, people didn't like it, right? I mean, that, that's just how it was. And then I kind of took the last chapter of that concept, which was, I call it 10% entrepreneur, and I turned that into a book proposal. And then we just got ignored because they gave me the same feedback. They were like, really good idea. Nobody knows who you are. And then when an article came out about my relationship with FOMO, I had a book deal two weeks later and I wrote the FOMO book because of everybody wanted to take a selfie with the FOMO guy because everybody feels FOMO. So it was like that second book was all about the market telling me what it wanted. And for the first time after so much rejection, when the, when the market tells you that they like your product and that can be a book or it can be anything else, it, it's kind of in the beginning, you're like, no, you don't really like this, right? You don't really trust it because you've just been used to getting rejected. And I think that being able to flip that switch to say, hey, this thing, this is where I should run. That is a very, it's like, that's a big moment in your life. And so that when it happens, everybody, like I remember this, this is a little cheesy, but if you ever watched The Good Wife, did you watch The Good Wife, Dory? I didn't know. Tell Whoa, me. Get ready. You need to binge it. It's really good. Um, this woman, Alicia Florek, she's talking to her boss and the boss says, when life opens a door for you, you should run through it, you know? And so that's what you have to do. Now, your new book, which I have the pleasure of reading this this week, and I've been flipping through it, it is a book. I mean, I'll, I'll, it's a book that I resonate with in some ways because you really start the book talking about living in New York City during the pandemic. And you and I are neighbors in New York City, although I never see you. And uh, we'll fix that. And I, and, and I remember, and you talk about the fact that when the pandemic hit, like a lot of work that you do disappeared. And it was the same with me. Like, you know, my book came out in the pandemic, all my speaking stuff just got canceled. And I just remember being like, whoa, right? And then you figured out how to pivot and adjust yourself and then be a long-term thinker and kind of get away from the short-term thinking that all of us felt in the early days of March in 2020. So for the folks that are, you know, we're all going to run out and buy it, but tell us about when, what what this idea came from, why you decided to write this book, which is about thinking for the long term. Yeah. So writing, so when I got my acceptance letter for the long game and I found out that that Harvard Business Review Press was interested, it was February 28th, 2020. And so literally the next day, it was the first case of COVID in New York. And within a week, pretty much the world had collapsed. So my interest in the topic predated COVID, although certainly during this time in the pandemic when everything was by necessity, so reactive, so much about, you know, change and pivoting and adjusting. And, you know, how do we, how do we play the short game? That's, that's what everybody wanted. And, 
you know, it it made me wonder. Uh, there were sort of these moments of doubt about, okay, is is long term thinking still going to be a thing? Is this still important? But what I realized is that. I think probably even more than ever, because as we are now adjusting to the next phase of COVID, which is, okay, it's probably not going away. It's probably going to be this condition, this chronic condition, whether it's medically chronic or just societally chronic. Mm. um, It's something that we're going to have to continue to be dealing with. And we can't be in reactive mode forever. That is is not the, the way to live. We don't want to be jellyfish on the water just kind of ending up wherever, which is what happens if you keep continually responding to external stimuli. We need to set some intentions. We need something to to move toward. And I think that's where long-term thinking comes in and becomes relevant. But why I was interested in this even beforehand is that, you know, ultimately – there are so many societal pressures around short-term thinking. I mean, we see it at the corporate level with, uh, you know, the rush to quarterly earnings and sometimes the malfeasance that comes with people being so desperate to get those results. And we see it in our own lives with just the the problems that come with comparison and social media and FOMO and uh, people being so concerned about what everybody else is doing. And ultimately, I think we need to set our own intentions, play our own game, and recognize, this is not easy, that the most valuable things often take much longer than we want. It's more complicated to get there than we want. But if we want it badly enough, we have to persevere through it. And I really wanted to create a book that was a bit of a guide or a framework so that people are more likely to be able to do that and to persevere when something's really important. FOMO. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, or delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you improve efficiency by bringing all major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move, so do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. And with rising prices everywhere you look, you got to do the math and save money. Good news, by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. So head over to netsuite.com slash FOMO. That's netsuite.com slash FOMO. netsuite.com slash FOMO. FOMO. I was curious, when I first read the concept, it, one of the things that I thought, I was like, okay, so this is a book about tactical versus strategic. Do you think that is that part of the way you think about this or is this is that the wrong way to think about this? Because I think a lot of times you say, like, you got to be a strategic thinker. Don't just be making the tactical moves. But but is is, is that how you kind of frame it as well? I mean, I love tactics as much as the next girl. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, I'm all about tactics. And I think um, it's valuable because sometimes mm. sometimes where we fall short is that the actual mechanics of like, well, how do you do it? Like literally, what do you say? Or literally how you structure this? Sometimes people hold that information a little a little too close as uh, kind of power hoarding. And that bothers mm-hmm. me. And so mm-hmm. for a lot of my work, actually, a lot of my previous books, I would say they were heavily tactical because I really wanted to uh, 
lay things bare and, and make it transparent about, okay, you want, you want to be a recognized expert? Here's what it looks like, you know, which is what I wrote about in Stand Out. Or, hey, you want to create multiple streams of income through, you know, online courses or building online communities or podcasting or whatever. Here's how to do it. And I wrote about that in my book, Entrepreneurial You. So I'm not going to diss tactics. I like them. But also, one of the themes that I talk about in the long game is I think that where we sometimes falter is that we get too accustomed to operating in one particular mode and we just keep doing that and we fail to shift and if we really want to be successful in our lives and our careers, we have to realize there, there is a time for, for different strategies. There's a time for different seasons. And sometimes we need to be in heads-up mode, which is where we're looking around. We're looking for ideas. We're meeting people. We're getting inspired. We're figuring out what we want to do. And then there's also a time for heads-down mode where we actually do it. And it, it is a mistake to go to either of those extremes. Because obviously, if you are too much in heads-up mode, you never get anything done. You know, it's shiny object syndrome. You're flitting around. But also, there's an equal danger in being too much in heads-down mode because you keep executing a strategy that may have outlived its usefulness. You, you may be doing a great job advancing toward a goal that you no longer want. And so we have to understand, if we're really being long-term thinkers, about how to, to shift between those modes and when it's necessary to do it to get a holistic picture of where we want to be. You're so right. I just, as you're talking about that, I'm having a lot of thoughts, but one is you, we all know the person and maybe that person is us that it's like, ever since I was a little kid, I wanted to be a lawyer. And so you did all this stuff. And then one day you're like, I don't like this. And you never took the time to ask yourself, not to pick on lawyers, by the way, some people love being lawyers, but you, you, you're like, your head's down, you're just working, working, working. And then you wake up and you're deeply unhappy and unfulfilled. And so we want to avoid that. Now, I'd love to just hear from you. You know, we all want to do this. I think nobody is like, you don't talk about great people and say like, you know, this, you know, Martin Luther King, he was really bad at long-term thinking, but what a great man. Of course not. These great leaders can see the long-term. So how can we, all of us here listening, what are some things we can do to, to be better at, at, at really playing the long game? Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to sharpening our abilities for the long-term thinking, there's a, a few pieces to keep in mind. One, which is actually the starting point of the long game and the first few chapters really focus on this, is about the importance of creating white space in your calendar. Because at a very literal level, we are not able to do long-term thinking if all we are doing, which I think is the case for so many of us these days, is racing around like a maniac from meeting to meeting, from Zoom call to Zoom call, and answering emails. It is not that it takes a huge amount of time to do strategic thinking. It doesn't, but it takes some time. And so clearing out some of the chaff so that we actually have the bandwidth to ask ourselves important questions is really important. So I would say that is, that is number one. And do you recommend as part of that actually getting for example like okay you clear the you clear the schedule but then you're sitting at your desk and you know you get sucked back in we all do right we're all human i like to go for a walk or i like to go to a different part of the room is that something that that we can do also to just sort of allow ourselves to not be i guess pulled back into our usual routine yeah yeah absolutely i mean it's it, it's the same thing right i mean for whatever the temptation is 
you need to separate yourself from the temptation. Uh, so in, in one, of, uh, one of the later chapters, I talk about, uh, you know, the, the famous marshmallow study that Walter Michel did with kids, where it's, you know, okay, you can have one marshmallow now or two marshmallows if you wait 15 minutes. And, you know, it, it's, it's kind of funny to think about these kids, you know, trying to, try to strategize about, oh, tasty marshmallow. <laughs> but for all of us, I mean, it is kind of long-term thinking writ large. And what I'm interested in is actually some of the strategies that the kids used. Because guess what? Uh, you are not going to be able to wait for the two marshmallows if you just sit there staring at the two marshmallows, this is not going to work. The kids literally, the ones who were successful, they literally would walk across the other side of the room. So they're, they're like, no, I can't be near those marshmallows. And they knew enough to get to get away from them. Or, you know, they were, they were far away and they were picturing. They're like, no, it's not really a marshmallow. It's like a cloud. That's what it is. And you can't <laughs> eat a cloud. You know, they came up with strategies. So... You are almost certainly, if you were just sitting there at your desk, at your computer, going to get sucked in by the next ping. So we have to find a way to sort of separate ourselves from that. That's exactly right. Okay, what else can we do? Yeah. So the second part uh, of becoming a long-term thinker is really deciding where we want our focus to be. And I think part of it, honestly, is extricating ourselves from the scripts that a lot of us are running about what what success looks like or where we ought to be. Um, it's, it's kind of drilling down to these questions of what, what do I want? What's interesting? Let's go back to first principles. Am I still interested in and fulfilled by what I am doing? And also creating pathways for yourself and this is where I, I think especially, uh, you know, you talk about being a 10% entrepreneur, which I love. Uh, one of the things that I talk about in the long game is Google's famous uh, 20, you know, 20% time, where you allocate up to 20% of your time on a kind of speculative project. And I want to argue whether or not that's your company's policy, I think all of us need to be doing this. Whether we're self-employed, whether we work at a company, we need to be taking on more small speculative projects because that is how we essentially turn ourselves into Swiss army knives. That is how we learn new things that enable us to prepare for future realities that we can't predict. And those So you got to work on an NFT, I guess is what you're saying. You're going to do an... I mean, exactly. that, that is true, right? Everybody I know is working on an NFT... Now, you're not going to quit your job and try to NFT your life, but if you spend a little bit of your time learning about that space, even if it doesn't go anywhere, you've learned something. And, you know, I think it's, that's a very valid point. And you see this all the time that the people who get into stuff early and learn and don't just, you know, they're not pouring all their money and time into it, but they, they, they become educated. They oftentimes can be the first movers in a space that becomes really interesting. So that's a really good point. Now, the question I have for you on this, you know, back getting back to first principles is great. I super believe that, but my problem is I don't even know the question to ask myself. So what are, do you have a couple of advice sort of advice points on like, what is the question we should be asking ourselves? Yeah, absolutely. So I, I am a big fan of, lowering the bar. <laughs> I think, you know, a lot of us get hung up about, oh, I have to make the perfect choice. I have to make the perfect decision. 
I think that we're going to be here a long time if we're waiting for perfect. And so I have a concept that I talk about in the long game, which I call optimize for interesting. And this is essentially my philosophy of, um, you know, how we can make career choices, how we can figure things out. It's, you know, don't look for what's my passion? What's my true meaning in life? You know, instead, just say, what's interesting? What, what do I find interesting? Anyone can answer that question. It is a low enough bar. And you keep moving in that direction until you stop finding it interesting. And if you never stop finding it interesting, mazel, you found your career. <laughs> but it enables you to actually get started. And it is through doing that we learn. So getting started is the most important part. That's beautiful because what it does is it makes sure that whatever you do has some alignment with not just the money stuff, but the other stuff too, because as, as most of, I think everybody listening knows, I mean, the money, the, you need the money. We all, we all need the money. We got to pay for life, but it's incredible how little money you need to cover the basics. And then from that point on the psychic value of doing something that, that is integrated with the rest of what you're interested in, like that has crazy amounts of value. And so you could pay somebody double to do a job they hate and they would be less happy if you paid them, you know, half, but gave them something that they really connected with. Assuming you can cover. I mean, that's also like there's some privilege to that statement. I will totally own that. But but it is it is a it's a good point. You got one more for us? Absolutely. So the final section, the final third of the long game is about what I call keeping the faith. Because I, I think this is a really important part of being a long-term thinker. It is almost inevitable that whatever you want to do, if it's, if it's a meaningful enough goal or big enough goal, it is probably not going to work precisely the way that you imagine. It is statistically probably going to take longer. It's probably going to have a lot of twists and turns to it. And that is a moment when it's easy to kind of get down on it. It's easy in the moment to wonder, is this actually a thing? Is this working? In the moment, it is really hard, if not impossible, to be able to tell the difference between is it working, period, or is it not working yet? And we don't know. And so we have to be resilient enough to recognize that we often need to push past those thoughts. And, you know, we don't, obviously, we don't want to be idiots. We don't want to be like clinging to the life raft in the freezing waters and the ship has gone down. But for many of us, perhaps most of us, I would be inclined to say that the opposite error is true, that we give up too soon on our dreams and our goals. And it's important to make sure that, you know, if we do persist and get to the other side, that is how we are able to put a competitive moat between us and other people, because that is what they are not willing to do. FOMO. Tudo bem, meus queridos FOMO sapiens? Now that right there was Portuguese. And as you know, I love speaking foreign languages. But I'm not alone. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off that list with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. 
Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's tips and tools are approachable, accessible, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Now, FOMO Sapiens, you know I speak four languages, and it takes work to stay on top of them, especially with French. C'est difficile. But with Babbel, I'm able to practice practical conversations that I can actually use in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash FOMO. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash FOMO. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash FOMO. Rules and restrictions may apply. FOMO. It's so true. I don't know if you've read uh, the book by Jim McKelvey about the story of, of Square. He was the founder of Square with Jack Dorsey. And early in their journey, or they had kind of been up for a while, but Amazon came in and basically copied them. And they had this moment of reckoning. What should we change? What should we do? And, but they were like, we know that we're doing the right thing. We are not going to change a thing. And they ended up, Amazon ended up adopting their system and they ended up winning. So you're right about the moat. That's a super valid point. Obviously, yeah, you don't want to end up, you know, as you're talking, I'm thinking of the end of Titanic with poor Kate Winslet and Leo on the raft. You that don't want to sad. be there. Yeah. It was sad. <laughs> you don't want to be there. But, uh, but sticking with things, if, if the green shoots are there, if you can see the data is telling you that it works, that's where winners are made. Now, Dory, you are a FOMA sapiens. You do. You are interesting. Like everybody, Dory is like writing Broadway shows. She makes LinkedIn courses that are super popular. She always convenes cool people for dinners. She's just a cool person. And that's why she's on the show for the third time. But I know you're also human. And so let's talk about the things that, you know, I, I'm sure there are things that pull you off your own path. You know, what what do you worry about when you think about, you know, what you're missing out on? Well, I can... I can tell you one area where I've statistically demonstrated that I falter sometimes. I did a time tracking study uh, a couple of years ago, uh, inspired by my friend Laura Vanderkam, who's like the ultimate in time tracking. And I, for a month, tracked everything I did in 15-minute increments. And what I realized, which was painful, let me tell you, I picked February. Just, like that sounds like my nightmare, but keep going. Yeah, I picked February because I knew it would, I could like save a day. I'm like, yeah, this is this is awful. But what I discovered was I actually am pretty good about social media usage. Like I don't waste a ton of time on it. It's not my main thing. But when I did, almost always, it turned out I could see on the calendar it was between ten and eleven at night. And what I realized, like, oh, there is a pattern here. This is what I'm doing when I am too tired to work and be productive, but I'm too awake to go to sleep and I'm just bored and I'm looking for some kind of a distraction. And it was actually really powerful because it made me analyze it and ask the question like, oh, is this the activity that I would choose? Like if I'm deliberately, I seem to be looking for some kind of a way to unwind is this the way that that optimally I would do it? And of course, the answer is no, that is not really what I would choose if I was rational. And so I've gotten a lot better about choosing something else, like reading a magazine article or reading a book instead and applying that. But I, I realized that I was, I was frittering away a lot of time because of a pattern that I couldn't see until I looked at the data. Yeah, I noticed that when I, um, when I go to get my coffee in the morning, I always bring my phone and then I'm waiting in the line. I'm on the phone and I've stopped doing that because 
it's nice to just exist in the world and pay attention to stuff and not just be on your phone or listening to podcasts all the time. It's nice to just be, you know, living in your city or your town and paying attention to the birds and the people and all that sort of stuff. And so we oftentimes use these things as a time filler when we're, you know, we're not sure how to better use that time and it becomes a default and it becomes a habit and we don't even mean to choose it. So it's a really good, good idea. Now the book is called The Long Game. You can find out more and you can even get a self-assessment if you go to doryclark.com. That's D-O-R-I-E clark.com slash the long game. Dory, thanks so much for being here. Patrick, always awesome. Thank you. FOMO. Big news. We now have a brand new website. So head over to fomosapiens.com where you can listen to past episodes, learn more about the show and find out how to advertise. Also head over to Spotify where you can find and follow playlists of the best of the show. You can also connect with me on Instagram at Patrick J. McGinnis, on Twitter at PJ McGinnis, and on LinkedIn. I'd love to hear from you, so don't be shy. FOMO Sapiens is recorded in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis, and editing and post-production is by Josh Elstrup. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. And as always, you can find me at FOMOSapiens.com and at PatrickMcGinnis.com. To advertise on FOMO Sapiens, reach out to contact at FOMOSapiens.com. FOMO.